Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with John Bourne about crisis communication in times of turmoil. He's had over 30 years of experience on the topic. John's the former director of the Ohio Department of Public Safety under Governor John Kasich. He was also there during the Ebola crisis. He also previously served as Colonel and Superintendent of the Ohio State Highway Patrol, capping a 26-year law enforcement career. He currently is working with the Scripps College of Communication and the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. John, with all of your experience as, as the director of the Department of Public Safety, also as your, your role in the Ohio State Highway Patrol, crisis, crisis communication has been a key. How important is it during a time of turmoil like we're seeing today? Well, communication is the key factor. It's not just a key factor. Communication is the key factor in a crisis. In fact, effective communication, both internal and external, is probably as important prior to and after the crisis as it is within the crisis itself. Uh, explain that a little bit. What, what do you mean by that? Well, communication really hits at the heart of trust, and trust then leads to action. And so when a crisis occurs, it really falls into lots of different categories, but really there's natural crises and um, essentially man-made uh, crisis events. And a crisis, by the way, is different than a disaster or emergency. And so understanding what a crisis is, is probably the most important first step. And then communicating with everyone that could be uh, impacted or affected, all stakeholders uh, within an organization, a community, country, or in this case, the world, is critically important prior to that crisis actually occurring, and then obviously planning for it. But without communication, i give you an example. In 1993, uh, there was a riot at the Lucasville prison, at the time the state's only maximum security prison, and communication was hampered both internally and externally, media relations, communication with the media and with the public through the media uh, was uh, not always effective. But that really hit at what I think is probably later diagnosed as the underlying cause, and that was a lack of preparing for effective communication in a crisis. So preparation first, defining what a crisis is, it's much more encompassing 
than a disaster or an emergency, and certainly disasters and emergencies can, can constitute a crisis, but a crisis is bigger. In fact, a crisis is really just a risk and an opportunity combined. So are we in now a crisis or are we in a disaster? Both. Uh, the crisis, I, I would uh, call the umbrella term, and certainly there are disasters that human disasters, economic disasters, uh, emergency situations, life-altering, uh, life-saving, life-ending emergencies uh, that are a part of the crisis. But we're, we're clearly in a crisis, in a global crisis. And one, I think most people would agree that the world has not seen at least in a generation. We seem to rely on uh, daily communications from governors, from the White House, uh, across the board. It, how important is a daily communication during a time like this? Daily communication is, is very important. Sometimes it needs to be more frequent than that. Um, and really, that gets into the art of of uh, communication, and particularly crisis communication. There certainly is a science behind the preparation. Um, there are really, really, I think, stark differences between both communication methods, communication frequency, um, as well as the effectiveness and consistency of communication, not just in the United States and in Ohio, but across the, the world. And I think uh, for years to come, there will be a rich opportunity for people to look at what went right, what went wrong, what was effective. Uh, we know, though, that when people are given good information, they trust that information and it's actionable information, that you're much more likely to maximize the opportunity that a crisis brings rather than maximizing the risk. What kind of possible opportunity can we have with a crisis such as what we're going through? Can, can you explain that? Because I find that hard to get my head around. Yeah, an opportunity, uh, for example, is to learn from the crisis. You know, the, I think one of the most important lessons that we can learn is, is that a crisis is likely to occur in our lifetimes and in, in, in the future of the world. And so it's really important to learn uh, from a crisis event. And number one, that's the number one opportunity is to be able to learn from it. Obviously, while you're in the crisis itself, there are opportunities to save lives. And I think if you look at the various approaches that countries, communities, states have done, have proven that. That's an opportunity. Uh, I, I tell people, unfortunately, in my career, 32 years of law enforcement and public safety, and I say unfortunately, I witnessed crisis events. I witnessed disasters, emergencies, loss of life from, in, for example, in 2014, Ohio became uh, one of the first states in the United States to be impacted by the potential Ebola outbreak that was obviously impacting the continent and the countries within Africa. Yet, if you ask people about the Ebola outbreak in the United States in 2014, most people won't remember it. And that is because 
there were opportunities that were seized and the risk was minimized. So both after the learning, I think is probably the most obvious of what we can do in the future, but the risk that you can minimize even on a individual basis, the social distancing, all that's people are doing that because of communication, because they were provided facts on ways to protect themselves. We've seen various styles of crisis communication. And here in Ohio, for example, uh, Governor DeWine uh, is fairly low key, uh, surrounds himself with, with two people, the uh, head of public health and the lieutenant governor. We've seen other governors have more of a combative style, like uh, uh, Governor Cuomo in, in New York. We've seen the White House with a number of different styles, and it seems that w- it changes by the day. Talk about styles of crisis communication. What do people find comforting to them? Well, based on the crisis events I've been involved in, and, and I'm going to use a, a couple examples within those uh, prior to this pandemic, obviously shootings within schools or attacks, mass shootings, terrorist attacks were on uh, the, the uh, forefront of many people's thoughts. And so you had various approaches uh, when communicating about those events. Unfortunately, the frequency of those events brought more consistency in the approach uh, during those particular types of crisis events. There had been enough people that had been involved in those type of events that the science of the crisis communication became much clearer than just the art. Right now, we're seeing the art of communication, and some people are really going to like and trust the information coming out on a particular style. Look, for for my experience, the bottom line is, is that you have to be first consistent, truthful, and uh, the trust is the resulting, I think, judgment the people that are listening and receiving the message are probably as important as the person or the way the message is being delivered. If people are trusting what they are being told, that arms them with opportunities or the uh, information to be able to maximize the opportunity. In this particular case, uh, the science, I think across the globe, and particularly even in uh, the States, the science and the delivery of that information in the science has been relatively consistent uh, about what we know and what we don't know. And in every crisis, it's chaotic. Uh, In in almost every crisis, there's usually a slow response to recognize the outset of that crisis or the magnitude of the crisis. And in a crisis like this, an unfolding crisis, it's extraordinarily difficult, the evolving or unfolding crisis, because you don't know when they're going to end. Unfortunately, disaster like a hurricane or a tornado or a flood, the event occurs, and then there's the aftermath. At least you know there's a likelihood that the event is complete. Now you're dealing with the consequences. In the unfolding or evolving crisis events, it's extraordinarily difficult. And you'll see those communication styles, both internal within organizations and external, evolve over the crisis. Let me ask a, a question. I'm not sure how to put this, but... but uh... Let me try anyway. In a crisis like a school shooting or uh, something of that order, uh, 
we rely on hearing from law enforcement or people who are expert at uh, solving the situation or ameliorating the the, the crisis. Um uh, I think uh, sometimes here in Ohio, we rely on the head of public health, uh, Dr. Acton, as as a reliable source that people trust. Uh, we, on a national level, some people rely on Dr. Fauci to uh, as a trusted scientist. How important is it for us as uh, lay people out here? to hear from the experts as opposed to politicians and policymakers? Well, it's important to hear from leaders. And so uh, I think it, individually it, it may differ, but collectively it's really important that the message you're, you're hearing and is being delivered is both credible uh, and people trust that information or, or, or they're not going to, f- to, to follow that information. It's interesting. One of the uh, things that, I used to talk about when I was with the patrol is we began doing a lot of uh, media relations training following a number of different critical incidents, emergencies, disasters, and even some crisis events. And the amount of training or education that law enforcement received at one time, say 15 years ago, was extraordinarily low. Yet you ask those people to go out and perform a critical task of communicating to the public when they don't have the background or the experience. It's one of the few things that I think is extraordinarily lacking in consistency across the United States. As you know, both the Voinovich uh, College here at Ohio University and the Scripps College of Communication um, are offering crisis communication courses. And I think that's going to be a new um, phenomenon across the, both the United States and the world. Uh, that is is now taking root where people are recognizing, okay, who do you have speak? What are the messages? What are the delivery methods? You know, the one thing in this crisis that I will say that we have going for us, both as a country, as a state, and across the world, is communication modes have largely been intact. We may have changed. We're, we're now at our homes or in different locations, but we, we have communication. In some crisis events, uh, there are no communication or no effective communication methods using technology. And that is where I think crisis events can really deepen uh, into a spiral where it really becomes difficult to see the opportunity and not obviously experience the risk. Whether you're the president or a governor during this time of crisis, you're trying to put forth in these daily briefings, a, a consistent message, as, as you mentioned. Yet, almost everything that's said by governor or, or presidential spokesperson is parsed out through social media. How has that changed the whole concept of communicating with the public during a crisis? Well, social media and the instantaneous, literally, the instantaneous flow of information has obviously changed our world. And information and communication, if in fact it is key, and in every experience in my lifetime, communication has been key, the delivery of that information is is so radically different, really, just in the last five years. But if you look about the last 20 or 30 years, how information flows. So um, I would say... On the consistent side, 
that the message has been relatively the same. In other words, it's important that a key message, what, what do people need to know and what do you want to communicate and what do you want them to do has been a relatively consistent element within communication. How that flows out is obviously changed with technology, with social media. And the other thing that's really, really important is the ability to monitor and respond and stop false information if, in fact, uh, you can do that. The best method to filling the void is to fill the void with both accurate, truthful, credible information that people trust. And I am one that believes that in the human spirit and in the human mind, people have the ability, given enough information, most people will latch on to the credible, truthful source of information. But it's certainly a challenge in today's fragmented communication methods to be able to do that. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. We have... I guess the word would be partisan media, uh, more so now than than ever before. We have uh, Fox News and others on the right. We have MSNBC on the left. We look at people who follow Fox News, people who follow MSNBC. There's been some studies out recently that says that shapes how people are looking at the seriousness of this crisis and and whether they're going to respond uh, to public pleas for things like social distancing. We've never really in modern times had this kind of demarcation between ideological media. How does that work into your calculations? Well, if you look at the history of journalism, Um, I think it probably points to a good historical perspective. Obviously, journalism in the United States and journalism in the the world has ebbed and flowed uh, through different eras uh, over the history of communication. And I think, number one, uh, the most important thing is a phrase that we used to use when I worked both as a public safety director and in leadership as a colonel of the highway patrol. And, and I'm going to say it first, and then I'll explain it. And one is, is complaining is not a strategy. And so when we are losing, uh, or if an organization or an individual feels like they are losing the battle 
uh, to be able to get their message out. Um, that is a challenge to try to overcome. But I think it is uh, ultimately in the, I think, the confidence and the trust of people that given enough information, um, they will gravitate towards the truth. And that certainly is an extraordinarily cha challenging uh, prospect, but one that I think, if you think about it in that way and think, you know what, I I'm going to figure out, we're going to figure out a way to do that. Certainly, we can encourage people to balance uh, the information that they consume on a daily basis. But I think trying to persuade them rather than providing them an incentive to do that is probably a greater challenge. And if you look at where journalism came from 150 years or so ago, I think uh, ultimately the ship will right itself. Um, I, I have confidence at some point that it will. In short, you're saying people will seek out the truth uh, and they'll be able to parcel it out uh, through all of the filters that they're being given that ultimately, if they're given facts often enough, they will see the truth. The majority of the people, I believe, will. Ultimately, that will be the case. It's certainly a challenge. And we look at things in very short-term lenses today. So, you know, obviously, in even just a social media feed such as Twitter, it's extraordinarily short characters uh, that you have to be able to to be able to view that. But more broadly speaking, we think in terms of of months or years. But over time, I think uh, over a period of time, ultimately. Uh, people will move towards information that they've grown to trust and they trust it based on the, the resulting action. In other words, they, they can look back and say, you know what, I, I used to watch that uh, TV station or I used to follow that social media feed. But over time, I found that what they were telling me wasn't quite panning out. And so ultimately, over time, I think the majority of the public will follow um, the, the ultimate truth when it comes to a crisis. I, I, I want to, if it's okay, Tom, I just wanted to mention one thing sure. about crisis and opportunity and, and an example of looking things in a short-term lens. In 2016, uh, Cleveland, Ohio hosted the Republican National Convention, one of two national political conventions that summer, later being the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. Just a few days prior to that event, the uh, crescendo of predictions of widespread chaos and violence and civil unrest uh, that preceded that event was shared almost uniformly uh, by a lot of media outlets across the spectrum. Yet the people that were involved in that event, the crisis planning event, which had been going on for about two years, had a degree of confidence, not just because of the security apparatus in place, but because of the stakeholders in the city of Cleveland uh, and the community and the businesses and the shared both goal and equal communication that was going on in there. And I went up with the governor just a few days before that event and met with a group of community leaders, uh, clergy and business. And I walked away from that event with the opposite feeling that we were hearing about where Cleveland was going to end up. And, and, and it turned out to be one of the safest national special security events. You know, Congress allocated $50 million for each of those cities. 
And it became both of those, uh, particularly Cleveland, became uh, an incredible opportunity for Cleveland. The national news afterwards said it was a hotbed, a cool, hip place to be, uh, especially for a startup business and a safe place to be. Uh, if you would have went back to that month prior and looked at that short-term lens, you would have you would have not had that same feeling. There's a lot of anxiety, and so that was a planned crisis. You know, a crisis is a turning point. And in fact, if you look at the Merriam-Webster definition, it basically said it's a crucial time. It's a turning point in time, and so this crisis that we're in as well, ultimately, we'll, we will come out of it as a country and a world. And what we do with that opportunity or that turning point is probably more important for the future now that we're starting to see a potential end for it. John, you've used the term short-term lens on a a number of occasions. Uh, Let me ask you, we look back in our history and the American public suffered through the Great Depression, which went from the end of the 1920s to the mid-1930s. That was a long time. We suffered through World War II, which was, depending on how you make the demarcation, either late 30s to mid-1940s or at least 1941 through 1945. That was a long period of time for public sacrifice and public to be in a time of crisis. It seems that we already, with this coronavirus crisis, seem the pub- see the public n- not looking at it as seriously as it, as it goes on. In other words, there's a shorter attention span. It, 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 do I have that right or not? No, I think you do have it right. Now, if you look back at history books, and it's been a while since I looked at a history book about the 1918 flu, um, but if it's in a history book being taught in uh, today's schools or colleges, my guess is is that there's not a lot of pages or chapters devoted to that 1918 flu or to the Great Depression or to World War I. Um, when you're at the outset of a crisis, especially one that's unfolding or, or you don't know the, uh, when it's going to end, there's certain, certainly gonna be some people that are not necessarily heeding the seriousness of that event. And I think if you read about even any of those events, uh, what we now think of uh, in history is much different than what we looked, uh, what those people were looking at as they walked into the crisis. So I think the short uh, answer to your question is yes. I think we want things uh, today, and part of that is because of the of the nature of the world we're living in, including the technology. To, to let's move on to the next event, uh, and unfortunately, we don't know how long that's going to be, but we do know based on human history, that we will get through this and we will move on the other side of this crisis. And what we do with that preparation is key. And I, I, I've used this, and I, I wish I know who I could originally attribute this to because it's a paraphrasing of something I've heard for a lot of my career in public safety. And that is, is we're really good at preparing for the crisis that just occurred. We're not really as good at preparing for the crisis that's about to occur. And so if you think back to 9-11, September 11th, uh, that caught everyone off guard. Most people would say they were caught off guard by this pandemic. But I think if you look at prior 9-11, there were warning signs. There were things that were coming out. People were talking about that. 
Same thing with this crisis. Every crisis as a society uh, obviously changes. I think this is going to change the perspectives on a lot of different both institutions within the world, governments in the world, and individuals within the world about what they think about preparing for the next crisis. John, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned uh, that a key to crisis communication uh, is uh, telling people what you want them to do. Uh, And if we can simplify this situation, what we're talking about is we want people to social distance from one another to lower that curve uh, of of peak in the in the the virus uh, overtaking us. That's what you're asking people to do, and there have been various specifics on that. Some more specific than that, others, but we also have a patchwork in this country of states following that. Some states not following it. Some states really strict on it. Some states really not. How can you ask people to do something if we don't have consistency in messaging across the country? Well, I think if you look at what the science is telling us, the medical professionals and the scientists, both, for example, at the CDC, the World Health Organization, and even at the local and state levels in the United States, it's been pretty consistent. I mean, Three months ago, I don't think any of us had ever even heard or really knew what the term social distancing meant. I think that that is a key message that has resonated. resonated. And once you move off of that key message, I, I agree with you. I think there's been a, um, a variety of other messages that go along with that. But uh, the orders, whether or not there's a stay-at-home order at the state level, at the local level, at a national level, that social distancing concept, I think, has at least reached most people. You know, I saw a recent poll from a national polling firm. This is about three weeks ago. And it it surprised me that the number of people in the United States that were paying attention uh, to the pandemic and the coverage of the pandemic was a little less the number of people that paid attention after the attacks of 9-11. So 9-11 was one of the highest uh, uh, rated events when it came to capturing people's attention. And because you and I and most people listening to this are certainly aware of the pandemic, are aware of some of those messaging or communication issues, doesn't mean all are. So I think the number is in, in the 60 some percent range of where people about three weeks ago were paying attention. I suspect that's went up quite a bit since uh, three weeks ago because it seems like a day is like a year in today in, in today's crisis that we're in. But ultimately, those fundamental key messages of what you want people to do is key. I, I use an example. It's it's an emergency, an example of an emergency. But about fifty or fifty-five years ago in the United States. There was a significant effort by the fire community and fire prevention uh, professionals to start sending out messages about what you do, uh, number one, to prevent a fire, but also what to do when you have a fire. And so there's probably very few, if any, people in the United States that when hear a fire alarm going off in the location that you're in or your smoke detectors in your home, you don't know what to do. That's a key message. You know what to do. Um, when it comes to 
pandemic, social distancing has, uh, at least in my view, been one of the consistent messages, staying away from people as much as you can. You've spent your career uh, in not only communication, but in public safety and law enforcement. We, we have these stay-at-home orders, uh, again, in various degrees across the country. How are those enforced? Is that a law enforcement issue? Is that just a public buy-in issue? Uh, talk about that a moment. Well, it's, it's a really good question. Uh, certainly, depending on the state or the locality, there are criminal as well as civil penalties, fines uh, beyond the criminal side. But it really hits at the heart of, uh, of a society and uh, obviously a democratic society. And that is, is that if, if people don't voluntary com- voluntarily comply uh, with laws or with the greater good, you no longer have the definition of a society that will follow the rules. But I think at least uh, based on the numbers, and I've seen some analytics uh, from some national tech firms that are showing, it really has shifted people's behavior, both where they go and how they, how they, how they move, um, where they're congregating or not congregating. So by and large, I think that message has at least had uh, an effect on the majority of the country. Look, in my view, most people are inherently good and most people inherently want to follow the society's rules that are set up. Certainly that doesn't mean everyone, but uh, in this particular case uh, for the individual, uh, the greater good sometimes is the same as the individual good if they don't want to become infected. One last question, John, and that is, uh you, you've talked about crisis communication and different elements of it. If you could summarize, you've talked about consistency, truthfulness, and being clear on what you want people to do. Are, are those the three primary uh, purposes of crisis communication? Is that what we measure it by as to whether it is good or bad, or are there other things we should be looking at? I think those are the three legs of the stool. Um, the, the real result, uh, the, the real, I think, product of that and, and how you judge whether or not your communication is effective is the trust that results. And you can measure trust lots of ways, but one of those is through action. And so if, if what you're hearing or what you're communicating uh, on either side of that if it's resulting in people trusting your word and you're seeing the actions as a result of that trust, then you've had a successful communication and those three legs are strong. Unfortunately, there's lots of competing mechanisms of information out there. So you just have to win that battle. You really have to win the war uh, on the ultimate key within a crisis and that's communication. John, thank you so much for your expertise and and your time. Uh, This has been an important conversation, I think, to have at this moment in our history. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Today, we've been talking with John Bourne, former director of the Ohio Department of Public Safety, about crisis communication during times of turmoil. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. 
Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hudson at ohio.edu. That's hudson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.